0: Please turn to the back of your hymn book, page 872, 872, and then we'll open God's word to 1 John chapter 2, verse verse 28 to chapter 3, verse 23. I trust for most of you, these are familiar words, very precious words. It asks the question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And it answers that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. And has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. How many things must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? First, three, first, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God. For such deliverance. Now, please open your Bibles to 1 John. You find it on page 1866 in the Pew Bible, 1866. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28. Reading through to chapter 3, verse 23. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. And here is our text at chapter 3, 1 through 3. is pure. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous." He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in death. In him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. And this is His commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us Commandment. So far, the reading of God's Word, I encourage you to keep it open as we reflect upon the first three verses. Our Heidelberg Catechism begins with a very important and searching question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? This question is one that comes to each and every one of you personally. What is your only comfort in life and in death? The question presupposes something. It presupposes that we live in the midst of trouble, misery, suffering, anxiety, and grief. Each one of us is in need of comfort. We need comfort because we are descendants of Adam and Eve. And therefore, we find ourselves in a state of sin and misery. Sin has brought a curse upon all of creation. Consequently, people are subject to many griefs. The third chapter of the Bible, God said that as a result of Adam's rebellion, there would be pain in bringing forth children, pain in tilling the ground, pain from thorns and thistles, and pain in death as man returns to the ground from which he was taken. Because of sin, this world has become a dangerous place. We suffer because of the violence of other people, diseases, accidents, old age, and death. When Adam revolted, the world that was once a beautiful paradise was terribly broken. Throughout history, millions of people have been killed through war. Many have suffered persecution and torture. These are the realities of the world in which we live. If you were to drive through the streets of Aylmer, Tilsonburg, St. Thomas, or London this morning, it may appear to be peaceful, calm, and pleasant. But if you were to go from house to house, getting to know every family on that seemingly peaceful street, you would soon find out that every household has its own particular struggles and sorrows. In one house you will find a lonely widow or widower in another house you'll find a broken-hearted man or woman who has just completed their divorce proceedings the pain is unbearable and then as you move up the street you may find someone who's about to lose their house or business due to lack of work and as you continue to the next boulevard you may find in a home a teenage son or daughter that has rebelled, that has left a family in rebellion or been arrested for illegal activities. And then you come to the home of a young woman who is suffering the emotional trauma of abortion. Or the emotional wreckage of a child custody battle. Or the mental and emotional consequences of sexual abuse, alcohol addiction or drug use. A place that may appear from the outside to be very peaceful and happy with a nice white picket fence. It may be the very place where there's much suffering from the brokenness of sin and misery. To be delivered from this wretchedness, we need to face reality and admit the unpleasant fact of our sin and misery. Once we come to see that we are miserable sinners, then we also need to be directed to Jesus Christ to find the true soul-penetrating comfort that we need. Our sin is great, but the perfect and finished work of Jesus is far greater. So let's consider together this morning the first three verses of 1 John 3 in connection with Lord's Day 1, our only comfort in life and in death. The verses before us reveal love that amazes, love that alienates, love that assures, and love that activates. First of all, love that amazes. What are some of the experiences in your life that have caused you to say, wow, Maybe on your wedding day, you said to yourself, this girl loves me and has committed herself to me for life? Wow. Well, dear friends, there is a love that is far greater than that between a man and a woman. Notice how John begins this third chapter. Have a look with me at verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Behold, or see, or consider. That first word there in verse 1 is an imperative, it is both a command and an exclamation. This first verse is an outburst of wonder at the love by which we are made children of God. John is amazed. The love by which we may be adopted into his family is astounding. The father's love is not humdrum. The word that is translated what manner is used seven times in the New Testament. And in each case, it denotes astonishment and wonder. Wow. John marvels and prompts his readers to do the same. Behold, consider how great is this adopting love. What an honor to have it bestowed upon us. Sonship is ours, not by right, but only by grace. We become sons and daughters, not because we love God, but because He lavished His love on us. It is an unearned gift. The Father has bestowed or given it to us. It does not originate with us. It originates with God. Congregation, as you contemplate this great love, does it fill you with wonder, even as it did the Apostle John? Imagine. Imagine a homeless, rejected child from the streets coming into a man's house and vandalizing, destroying, and stealing the man's possessions, leaving his house in shambles, wrecking every precious thing. He spray paints the walls, tears the curtains, rips the chandeliers from the ceiling, turns on taps to flood the basement, takes a baseball bat to several windows, and smashes the china cabinet. And then the man comes home, and instead of severely punishing the child, He adopts him and makes him his son. He washes him, gives him new clothes, takes him into his family and gives him a place at his table. We would say, what an astonishing expression of kindness, mercy and love. Well, congregation, such is the love of the Father which is lavished on us. By nature, you and I are rebels, worthy of everlasting curse of God. You are children of corruption, disobedience, and ingratitude. You've repeatedly spat in the face of God. Yet God comes to you in his great love. And what does he do? He washes you, cleanses you through the blood of his own son. He gives you new clothes takes away your filthy rags, and clothes you with the righteousness of Jesus. He adopts you into his family, and he sets you at his table. He's not ashamed to be called your father and to call you his sons and daughters. He releases you from your deserved penalty because Jesus took the punishment. He brings you from a state of hostility and enmity to one of acceptance, favor, and honor. Behold, congregation, this love which the Father has lavished on us. The Apostle Paul said it this way, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Is this love the subject of your contemplation? Through the love demonstrated in Christ Jesus, I am not my own. I belong to him. Jesus, with his precious blood, has fully satisfied for all my sins. By making me his son, he has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He now watches over me as a faithful and loving father, watches over his dear son. There is not any part of your life with which he is not genuinely concerned. Not a hair can fall from your head without the will of your Father in heaven. Behold, consider, reflect upon, marvel in the love by which you were made a child of God. His fatherly love bestowed on us is worth more than anything, anything that the world can offer. In fact, we see secondly from our text that the love of the Father is a love that alienates us from the world. A love that alienates. Look with me in your Bibles to the last line of verse 1. Verse 1. Therefore or the reason why the world does not know us is because it did not know Him. You see, those who become recipients of the love of God become alienated from the world. The world does not know or understand those who have become true children of God. Unregenerate, unbelieving, unsaved people do not understand you. Why not? because they do not know God. They are at enmity with God. They will not submit to him, acknowledge his word, or pattern their life according to his standard. They have a different father, and therefore they operate according to different household rules. They can only understand and relate to those who belong to the same family as they do, the devil's family. Although they do not realize it, they remain under the tyranny of the devil. Because they will not acknowledge God who has revealed Himself in His Word, nor His Son, Jesus Christ, there is a barrier between themselves and true believers. Even as the Father is foreign to the world, so are His children. That's one of the reasons why the New Testament describes Christians as what? Strangers. Foreigners and aliens. Strangers, foreigners, and aliens. You should not be surprised, congregation, when the world does not understand you. When you begin to pattern your thinking and lifestyle according to the principles set forth on the pages of Holy Scripture, you will undoubtedly be looked upon as strange by the world. The true child of God understands that body and soul, in life and death, he's not his own, but belongs to his faithful Savior. His true comfort is in the fact that that he has been owned by the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The unsaved world, on the other hand, seek comfort in everything else except The love of the Father. Instead of beholding, contemplating, and rejoicing in His love, they turn to many substitutes to fill the void. They tend to flit around from one thing to the next as a bee in the summertime goes from flower to flower, trying to suck out the nectar from each flower. So many, many in the world flit around from one novelty to the next, trying to find satisfaction and comfort in what the world offers. There are the amusements of life the pleasures and entertainments of the world the thrills of adventure fame and fortune these things become very important to those who don't have the love of the father when they then see the child of god who takes a very moderate approach to many of these things it puzzles him it doesn't make any sense The children of God and those of the world are so different from each other that the world does not know us. Why are these Christians not attracted to the things that attract me? Why don't they laugh at some of the things that make me laugh? Why don't they pursue the things that I pursue? Why don't they go to the casino? Why don't they go to the parties that I go to? Why are they so moderate with alcohol? Why are they so concerned about what they watch on TV and what they read? Why are their concerns so different from mine during an election? Why do they stop their regular work on the Lord's Day to go to church every week? I just don't understand these people. Their values and priorities are so different. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus walked this earth, many did not know him listen to the words of john 1 10. he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him they knew him they knew him as a person a teacher a compassionate man but they did not understand his true identity They did not acknowledge their need of Him, confess Him as their Savior, nor bow before Him as Master. They did not comprehend Him as the true light which shines into the darkness. Oh yes, the world knew Him, but they did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. Congregation, so also the child of God who is indwelt by the Spirit of Christ is not understood nor accepted by the unsaved world. As Jesus was hated because he revealed their sin, so the Christian who shines the light in the world may be hated. Jesus said in John 16, verses 2 and 3, they will put you out of the synagogues, Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. Now, listen to this. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. They have not known the Father nor Jesus Christ, and therefore they do not know the children of God. You see, brothers and sisters. The love of the Father alienates you from the unregenerate world. We should not be surprised when the world considers us to be different. Neither should it discourage us if we are rejected by the world. When we are misunderstood and rejected, it is evident that we are truly a child of God. It confirms your sonship. It confirms that you belong to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And yet, why is it, brothers and sisters, that so often we are afraid of being frowned upon by the world? Why do we sometimes desire friendship with and acceptance by the world? Perhaps it's because we have not sufficiently contemplated the great love which the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Perhaps we do not sufficiently contemplate the fact that body and soul, in life and in death, I'm not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. If we truly understood the profound significance of our adoption, would we worry about being frowned upon by the world? Would we desire friendship with the world? Wouldn't we say... Even as the unregenerate world frowned upon my savior and continues to frown upon my father, so let them frown upon me. It only serves to confirm my adoption as a child in his family. And so congregation from verse one, we see first of all that his love amazes. And secondly, his love alienates. It separates us from this fallen world. And then thirdly, from the second verse, we notice that his love also assures. His love also assures. There are some who believe that they can never be assured of their salvation until that final day, when they actually stand before the throne of God, and they are set at his right hand, and they hear those words, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I've talked to people who say that until they hear those words, they cannot be certain of their salvation. But what does John say in the second verse of chapter 3? Have a look. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God. The ESV says, Beloved, we are God's children now. The assurance of sonship is not merely a future hope or a future possibility. It is a present reality now, already in this life. We may be assured of the promises of God. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of god then he says you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out abba father the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of god the lord does not leave his people in doubt biting their nails until the day that death brings them into his presence The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit fills us with a sense of freedom and true confidence in approaching God. We can cry out, Abba, Father. When Jesus was in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, he cried out, Abba, Father, Just as he could call out as a son to his father, so believers have the privilege and the right to cry out as children, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit himself provides that assurance of our adoption. He does so not merely through some inner voice which whispers that we are his sons, Rather, he bears witness by producing in our lives the evidence of the Spirit's presence, the fruit of the Spirit. As we grow in our love for God and hatred of sin, as we turn away from the world and long for greater holiness, as we look forward to the return of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit is manifested and believers are reassured that they are children of God. Please notice how John addresses his readers in verse 2. Some translations say, dear friends, more literally, the word is beloved. Beloved, now we are children of God. They've had the love of the Father lavished on them, therefore John does not hesitate to call them what they are, beloved. It's so, congregation... If you've understood how great your sin and misery are, and if you have sought refuge in Jesus Christ, you can be assured in the words of Lord's Day 1 that His precious blood has fully paid for all your sins. The Holy Spirit assures you of eternal life, you are truly one of His beloved. Those who have sought the forgiveness of their sin through their mediator don't have to be plagued with nagging doubts. Yes, we ought to grieve when we sin against him and offend our father, but that's different than doubting our sonship. If a man adopts a boy to be his son, that boy might do many things to offend his father. Nevertheless, the legal adoption stands. He remains a child of his father. He can be assured of the legality of his adoption. He was not adopted on the condition that he live without fault in his father's house. He was adopted because his father wanted him, loved him. Although there are times when the actions of the son are a terrible grief to the father, the adoption stands, it is legally binding. And so it is also in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. John says, Beloved, now we are children of God. There's no question about it. This is not a future possibility. It is a present reality. To constantly doubt our sonship is unbelief. It's unbelief in that it questions whether the love of the Father bestowed on us is really sufficient to make us and keep us His sons the Apostle John had no doubt that the love of the Father was sufficient. His love brought present assurance of sonship. And that's not all. In addition to that, it also brings assurance of future transformation. Assurance of sonship now and assurance of transformation yet to come. Look with me to verse 2. Verse 2, John says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. There is a progression in verse 2 from what we are now to what we shall be. The Apostle John openly admits his own ignorance as to the exact details of our future state. Yes, the Bible does give us some hints as to what we shall be. Matthew 13, verse 43 says, The righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Revelation twenty two fourteen 14 says, We shall see his face, and his name shall be on our foreheads. Scripture does give us some glimpses into the future, but the exact state of the redeemed in heaven is unknown even to this apostle of Christ. John will not speculate. He will go no further than what the Lord has revealed. Perhaps this is a good reminder to us that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. It's only what is revealed that is for us and our children. This is true for every doctrine of Scripture. We need to keep ourselves within the confines of what God has revealed. With respect to our future state, John says, frankly, I don't have all the answers. It has not yet been revealed. But one thing he does know about the future, and that he is willing to share with his readers. We know, says John. We know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. No doubt he's referring to the appearing of Jesus Christ. When he is revealed, we will be transformed and conformed to the likeness of the Son of God. Don't we find this in the third chapter of Philippians? Where the apostle said, We eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, what? Transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body. Someday, we shall be like Him. Not as He was in His state of humiliation, But as he is in his state of glory, when he appears, not only will his children be with him, but we will be like him. Not only do we belong to our faithful Savior, but we will be like our faithful Savior. We will not be equal to him, but we will be conformed to his likeness. He will always have the preeminence, but we will share his immortality. We will be glorified in both body and soul. Congregation, this is what the love of the Father assures us of, not only present sonship, but also future transformation. What a great thought this is for the child of God. Is that your future? Will you be like him? Because of sin, our bodies are subject to many imperfections, as you well know. We succumb to suffering, sickness, and finally death. But when Jesus appears, all who have trusted him will receive a body like that of our glorified Lord. No more arthritis, heart disease, cancer, aching back, but most importantly, brothers and sisters, no more sin. No more sin. No more will we be attracted to those things which are an offense to God. Our bodies will be perfect instruments with which to glorify our Creator. Never again will the effects of sin hinder us from serving Him. Our bodies will be fit instruments for the glory of God. All the sin and misery of this life will be gone forever. Jesus will appear. We will see him as he is. And so we will be like him. What an amazing day that will be when the glorified Christ returns and we behold him face to face. So, congregation, we have seen that the Father's love is a love that amazes, it's a love that alienates. It's a love that assures, and finally, it's a love that activates. It's a love that activates. His love, using the words of our catechism, makes us wholeheartedly willing and ready to live for Him. Having understood the privilege of sonship and the glory that awaits the children of God, it will inevitably produce a change in one's life. Notice what John says in verse 3. Have a look, verse 3. Everyone who has this hope in him, what? Purifies himself just as he is pure. Those who have put their hope in Christ And know that one day they will be like him. They will purify themselves. Note that John does not say he might purify himself or he should purify himself. No, he states it as a plain fact. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. As the child of God lives with the assurance of one day becoming like Christ, the more he considers it, the more he purifies himself of sin. Now, of course, we know from Scripture that it's only the blood of Christ that can cleanse us from the guilt of sin. There is nothing that we can do to remove the guilt of sin. John says in chapter 1, verse 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Nevertheless, while He cleanses us from the guilt of sin, we also have a role to play in purifying ourselves from the power of sin. It is precisely here that the true child of God is identified. One who truly understands his adoption by the Father and understands that one day he will be like the Son, such a one strives to build a holy character through the power of the Spirit. We know that our Savior is pure, free from all moral stain, Knowing that we will be like him when he is revealed, we strive already now to purify ourselves. Every person who has had the love of the Father bestowed upon him is involved in a battle with sin. We strive to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to bring ourselves more and more into conformity with the Word The true child of God knows that the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life only draw him away from the love of the Father and bring dishonor to him, and thus we seek to purify ourselves. Dear friends, is that your constant desire, to put away the deeds of the flesh? Has the love of the Father in Jesus Christ made you wholeheartedly willing and ready to live for him? Children, young people, are you willing and ready to live for Him? At school? On the school bus? On the soccer field? When hanging out with your friends? When clicking your mouse? When thumbing your phone? When participating in our youth group? When preparing for your catechism lesson, are you willing and ready to live for Him? Not because you have to, but because you want to, because of His great love. His love drives you, compels you, activates you. It seems to me, congregation, that this aspect of the Christian life is often neglected today. Today. Holiness and purity seem to be optional for many professing Christians. As long as you're saved, well, that's the important thing. But John says here that salvation is inevitably accompanied by self-purification. This is not optional. John says, verse 3, have a look there again, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. Everyone means that there's not one single exception. It is inconceivable to be a child of God and not care about holiness, not desire to reflect in your life the purity of God. Without striving and longing for greater sanctification, there can be no present assurance of sonship, nor assurance of future transformation. Our willingness and readiness to live for Him are the confirmation of our adoption, the apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us, what, cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Let us cleanse ourselves. Congregation, if you've had the love of the Father bestowed on you, then you will begin to abhor The filthiness of the flesh, and you will begin to pursue self purification, looking unto him who is eternally and unchangeably pure and righteous. And so, as we close, I ask you once again that important and heart searching question What is your only comfort in life and in death? The answer that we find in Scripture is this. My only comfort is that I belong to the triune God. His love has separated me from the world. It assures me of sonship. It will transform me to be like Jesus. And His love makes me willing and ready to live for Him. Then let us contemplate that love. And let us rejoice in it. Until the day our Savior is revealed. What an honor it is to be adopted into God's family. Don't take it for granted. Come to Him thankfully, joyfully, humbly. Come with a heart of love for your Father, your Savior, your Master, your God. And continue your life with a determination to live for Him. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Turn to the Savior, and he will grant you all that you need for time and eternity. Let us pray. Lord our God, we pray that you will fill us with astonishment and wonder even as you did the Apostle John. Behold what manner of love, what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. May we be amazed, Lord, we who have been, many of us here have been born and raised with the Christian faith. And Lord, we confess before you that sometimes we lose that sense of amazement. We pray that you will fill our hearts with it We we stand in awe of what has been bestowed upon us. We pray, Lord, that having received, having known that love, having been adopted in your family, we wouldn't be surprised when it brings alienation when we are looked upon as awed by the world, may we nevertheless present before the world that message of your saving love. We pray, Lord, that if there are any here who are struggling with doubt, Lord, that they may be able, along with the Apostle John, to say we are now children of God. We anticipate the day when we will be transformed into the likeness of Christ. What a tremendous day that will be. We struggle, Lord, in this life with so many difficulties, trials, disappointments. We suffer from the breakdown of the body, but the day will come when we will be like the one who purchased us. And so, Lord, we Pray that we might truly rejoice in that. And may we give ourselves, may the children here and the young people give themselves wholeheartedly. May they be willing and ready to live for you. Hear us, Lord, and receive our praises as we conclude. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen.